Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. this gets you as excited fortnightly as it does me but every two weeks we have the opportunity to speak with a man who not only has a delightful sounding radio voice but he has an equally impressive brain he's our go-to expert on all things related to astronomy and space a veteran radio and tv broadcaster and edutainer we call dr sky some other people refer to him as steve cates he is is the anchor of the Dr. Sky Experience podcast, which you can check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. But every two weeks, we spend an hour on the infinite side of midnight with Dr. Sky. Hello, Steve. Thanks again for joining me. And good morning, Frank. Good to be with you going infinite as we move into what? August 23rd, 2023. It's moving quickly, but good to be with you and the listeners. Thank you. It is great to be with you. Let's begin with the story that I mentioned yesterday. And by the way, if people have questions, we will be happy to try and get to as many calls as we can throughout the hour. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with a story I mentioned yesterday on the air, which has a lot of people kind of scratching their heads and wondering what the implications are of this. The the Russian lunar probe crashed into the moon. Uh, It looks like a big setback for the Russian space program. What do we know about exactly what happened? Well, the short story on Luna 25 goes like this. It's a Putin-backed space probe. In other words, he really initiated the energy behind this so that the Russians, previous Soviets, and their great you know attempts at space, they did a lot of good things, could kind of have a conquest of the moon by landing this Luna 25 spacecraft at the south pole of the moon. But I got to hold the phone for a moment because the difficulty needs to be spoken about about landing a vehicle on this particular area of the moon. Why? It's usually bathed you know, in darkness, not light. Obviously, it's in darkness. And it does have a short period of time in which sunlight exists. But the problematic thing, Frank, is it's a very rocky and unstable terrain. So this particular spacecraft was launched out. And they went on their laurels. The last time they successfully soft-landed on the moon was back in 1976 with Luna 24, it successfully brought back, I think, about six ounces of moon material. And they were very, you know, proud of that, and they should be. But what happened is this particular object, at least as the news media reports, and Roscosmos, I believe, has admitted this, their spacecraft obviously had some problems putting it mildly in the descent. Now, this is about a $130 million probe. What basically happened, 
from what we know, is a maneuvering engine, could not be shut down, and it ran over 120 seconds instead of its programmable, well, should have been programmable 84 seconds. So it would be kind of the ridiculous analogy is if you put like a brick or a rock on your gas pedal and you expected the car to stop, but the gas pedal and the engine's running at full bore, and obviously you hit something very solid. In this case, they hit the lunar surface. But the other story about this is even more bizarre. The chief astronomer and scientist on Lunar 25 is a gentleman named Mikhail Marov. Now, why is he important? Well, he suddenly goes to the hospital after the Lunar 25 crash because so much stress was on him. This was his lifelong project. He was distraught, as he said. And he, quote, said this. He was demanding, I say, quote, no cover-up, end quote, as this was his life work, and he wanted everybody to know what really happened with this. So apparently there was some serious problems with the algorithms in the pre-programming on this particular spacecraft. But we have to give the Russians, at least at the time then, the Soviets, some credit, Frank, because they were the first nation, people may not know this, to land the spacecraft on another celestial body. This is true, back in February of 1966 with Luna 9. But guess what? There's another interesting story about this, and I'll be brief. Not only was the Luna 25 racing to the surface of the moon to make this conquest of landing, which we haven't done before at the lunar south pole, the nation of India, and just hours from when the show will go off the air, early tomorrow morning, the Indian Chandrayaan-3 spacecraft is set to soft land on the surface of the moon by 8.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And people can follow that if you just go across YouTube. There'll be live descent, you know, video and the live video, as we say, streaming from the Chandrayaan at around 7.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So there's actually this little race to the moon, but now the Russians are out of the picture. Kind of a strange story. Isn't this amazing? It, it, it is. Uh, we've spoken before about why it's taken the United States so long to even attempt to go back to the moon. There mm-hmm. were, it seemed like between 1969 and 1972, there were all sorts of uh, lunar missions right. that, that uh, NASA and the Americans were behind. But since Apollo 17 in 1972, we haven't been back. The Russians have not been back since 1976, as you mentioned, with Luna 24. Correct. Why right. the Russian gap? I mean, you've explained the American uh, l- lack of interest in going to the moon as just that, a lack of interest and an unwillingness to dedicate the amount of funds necessary to uh, fund right. a, a lunar mission. But why would that apply as well to the Soviets or the Russians? Well, great question. The wind was knocked out of their sails when they were trying to do the manned mission to the moon. And I think we've mentioned this, but to any new listener, this is a new revelation. Their big giant rocket called the N-1, which in many ways, the bottom part of that N-1 Russian rocket had a tremendous cluster of these rocket motors like Elon Musk is doing with Starship. But sadly, in front of a large contingent of their then Soviet you know, personnel and space scientists, it exploded on the launch pad. And they basically had, you know, no real attempt or ability financially and even Mm. spiritually, I guess, to go to the moon. So right now, this is interesting. They haven't been back to the moon because it's not a priority for the Russians. They've been putting a lot of their energy into low Earth orbit satellites, clusters of military satellites that they're using. And even some of these nefarious satellites that we can hopefully talk about a little later you know, the anti satellite satellite that if you don't like somebody's satellite or they want to destroy it, the new realm of space warfare, which nobody really likes, but as a realist, it seems like that's where it's headed. But 
They lost $130 million spacecraft and a lot of other things, but they lost this particular race to the South Pole of the Moon. But let's give the Indian nation some real big kudos because this, if it happens, will be a very good trendsetter in future exploration of the moon. As we know with Artemis III, that's the American goal of sending astronauts back to the moon. But first, we have to be able to do a soft landing down there because there's a lot of things down there that are valuable, Frank, including what we know as water ice. And it's the coldest place in the solar system. I know many people may take me to task and say, wait a minute. The moon's only about 250,000 miles away. How can it be colder than if you went out past the area of dwarf Pluto or out to the eighth planet, the planet Neptune? But it's actually true in the southern part of the moon. It's very interesting. It is indeed. 800-848-9222. Let's begin with John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hi. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Um, My question is, uh, I heard one time that... When you listen to AM and FM radio, the static mm-hmm. noise in the background, it's yes. uh, actually from a supernova that exploded in our galaxy like millions or billions of years ago. Is that true? Do we hear the remnants well, generally, of that static? Well, John, you're right. You're right on target on that. And good morning to you. This is a great question. Here's the simple answer. When the universe exploded, it then heated up like if he took some you know, sugar cubes and just melted them into a frying pan. That background explosion called the cosmic microwave background radiation in the universe is this never-ending seething hiss. But on top of that, we have the sun to contend with, John. And what we're getting through there is actual disruptions in the upper atmosphere of the Earth, which AM radio and so many other uh, frequencies utilize, and ham radio operators in the ionosphere. When the solar radiation comes through and the cosmic background radiation that's generally the answer is where this hiss is from. It's out there. It'll always be out there. And it's a proof that our universe started a long time ago in what some might call a big expansion. Were you ever a, uh, a ham radio guy, Steve? You know, I tried. And my funny story is I remember the old days. Now I'm dating myself. I had this Heath kit, radio kit. And in the high school I went to, which was Paramus Catholic up there, they had a radio club. So I joined it and I tried to build one of those. But honestly, I never got my license for it, but all my friends around me were there. And, you know, I would just kind of envy them, but it was my foolishness. I didn't complete it. They would get these QSL cards. People who were in the radio, uh, ham radio world know. In those days, and still today, they were trying to seek out signals and radio reception and two-way confirmation of stations, let's say, in Antarctica. Mm. And actually today, it even goes up to the space station itself, where there's actually a ham radio platform there. I think it's somewhere around two meters, which I think in the radio world is somewhere. Somebody help me out there. I think it's around 144 megahertz. But I tried, but I never did it. But now it's easier because I don't think you have to master Morse code anymore. You can just go do and take the tests, and it's open to everybody as an alternative to uh, regular broadcast radio. You can communicate and have some fun. Yeah, no, I, I think you're. I think you're right. All right, uh, people are already planning their trips around the next solar eclipse, which I believe is going to be April in uh, April of uh, next year, April of 2024. What do we know about this solar eclipse, Steve? Where's the best place to look at it, and uh, what are, what are kind of the highlights of this one? Well, thank you. This is a great segue because we're going to be talking about how rare are simply solar eclipses. And mind you, folks out there, you have an opportunity to see, even though you may have to travel a little bit, October 14th, Saturday, which is literally around the corner, 
there's going to be that ring of fire eclipse in which we know that the moon is smaller than the diameter of the sun. So thus you see this ring as if you put like a nickel on top of a quarter. This is good. But beware, ladies and gentlemen, and Frank, because that, even though it's exciting as we talk about it, the problematic thing is you still would be staring at the sun, and that ring is dangerous to look at. So you need the solar glasses. So here we go. The magic of solar eclipses. Solar eclipses can occur as few as two a year or up to five. And we know why. They're caused by the moon passing in front of the sun. But what different types of eclipses are there? We know partial eclipses. Get those solar glasses out. That's when the moon doesn't cover it completely, maybe 20%, 50%, less than that annually. We know about partial eclipses. Then there's these annuals, which I just mentioned, the one with the ring of fire. And we mentioned before, we're going to see this one in the western United States in areas like Albuquerque. And we're going to do a special Dr. Sky program. We can actually talk about that because this radio station is not only here in the New York area. It's everywhere in America. And who knows, right? I'm sure even out into the cosmos, right, Fred? Oh, you better so believe we're it. Going to, absolutely. And very powerful. So that eclipse, which will occur Saturday, October the 14th, we'll talk about that some other time. We're going to do a big event there because that centers around the International Balloon, Albuquerque Balloon Festival. And I have it on good word that we'll be doing something together with, or at least this is what I've been told, with one of the last men on the moon, Dr. Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to go to the moon. He was a United States senator. And we're obviously looking to be on stage with him. And of course, he's the great legend. And I'm just the guy talking about the eclipse. But this will be a special event. But now, let's talk about some really other bizarre eclipses. There are another type of eclipse that's called a hybrid eclipse. What's that? The eclipse starts off as an annular eclipse. So some people around the world see this thing with the ring of fire. Then it transitions as it's moving its shadow to become a total eclipse of the sun. They're very rare. And then finally, the sacred geometry eclipse, the total eclipse, Frank, April 8th, 2024, I'm hoping with you and the station we can actually really do something big because totality will actually be seen up in far western New York. How about downtown Buffalo, New York? They get about two or three minutes of totality. But just to tell you this, a little technical, but I'll make it quick. Between the year 1001 A.D. and 3000 A.D., there are 1,684 partial eclipses of the sun. That accounts for 35.5% of all eclipses. How about annular eclipses? There's 1,573 of these. 33% of all solar eclipses. And then those rare hybrids, in that period from 1001 AD to 3000 AD, there's only 222 of those. That's 4.7%. And here we save the best for last. There's 1,258 total solar eclipses, 26.4% of all eclipses. And here's an even more bizarre fact. If you stood in one location and saw a total eclipse of the sun, when would the next frequency be that if you couldn't move your feet, when would another one probably occur? Frank, 375-year interval. So that's why we're telling people to get ready because April 8, 2024, I checked. We're trying to get into Texas somewhere and not to, you know, belabor you and the listeners with our headaches. But I think every hotel has been whammy triple booked, and who knows how people are going to go. But here's a little warning from yours truly. When we did the total solar eclipse up in uh, Idaho, that was August 21st of 2017. We got there. It was beautiful up in Rexburg, Idaho. But, Frank, after the eclipse, two hours later, we packed our gear. It took us 10 hours to drive only about 100 miles. That's how crowded the roads were. There were millions of people, but you got to be in that little tiny band 
of totality called the umbra. And we'll hopefully talk more about this as we count down some fascinating things. Don't miss it, folks. If you get a chance to see either of these, if you miss this total solar eclipse, I don't know if I'll be around, Frank, but it'll take place here in the West in August of 2045. So this one might be a good one to plan for, both in October and next April. That uh, that October 14th Ring of Fire eclipse, you mentioned yes. having to use solar glasses. You and others have cautioned us before about uh, choosing a reputable pair of solar glasses and not getting ripped off. Is there any sort of, uh, how do you know what's a real, if you're just shopping online, for instance, how do you know what's a yes. good pair of uh, of solar glasses to get so that you're not getting ripped off? Well, that's a good question. And here's the problem we had. I mean, we sell these, and I don't want to go into, you know, capitalist mode right now, but why not? We have the right ones. And how do you know the difference? Well, they have to have a certain certification, and anybody can print this on there. But there's an ISO certification ah, number okay. without going through it. But here's what, we, what happened last time. I wanted to have a really cool pair of solar glasses, so those steampunk-looking goggles. I bought a pair on Amazon. And I'm not going to name the company that I got them from. That's terrible. But here's what happened when I got them. They were terrible. Frank, they were nothing but green shaded like sunglasses, nowhere near. So if I, I put them on my eyes and looked you know, outside, I could see like a dark pair of regular sunglasses. How dangerous. So it really killed the good folks that were selling the real solar glasses because everybody was afraid. But we can go into that some other time. Yeah, you got to let me know. We'll, 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 offer that. we'll make yeah. a uh, we'll make a deal under the table. But the the short the short <laughs> answer is you have to look for that ISO certification. You need a certain ISO, and I'll get into that later with people because I'm not you know I have I don't know around my my studio here. I don't happen to have a pair, but you know the difference is here's how the sun should look. And people tell me, oh, I should use overexposed film. No, don't do that. Some people say, oh, welder's glasses are good. I'm not saying they're not but that really wasn't meant for solar viewing. Then some people say, if I'm TIG or MIG welding, why can't I use those? The reality is when you look at the sun through these things, little tiny, they look like you know, cellophane, but they're dark. The sun should look like an orange, literally, like you're looking at it. And it's the weirdest thing because when you look at it, most people never realize the sun is obviously about the same size as the moon. And that you see with a very comfortable level of light but just don't, you know, drop them or punch a hole in them by accident, you know, and especially with children, you want to be very careful. And then the simplest way, I know I'm going overboard here, but for a good reason, the simplest way to look at an eclipse is simply take a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, don't look in it, project the image like onto a sheet or a cardboard box or something, and you can watch it, but don't do the magnifying glass thing where you pull it close, because we've done these demos for children, to make sure they never look through a telescope without the proper filters in three seconds would take a sheet of newspaper. And with their backs to me, that thing is on fire. Imagine what would happen to your eye. Oh, yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, so October 14th, uh, the mark your calendar for Eclipse Day. All right. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in a minute. If you have questions, we will take as many as we can. 800-848-9222 on this, the infinite side of Midnight Straight Ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes and then realized it was still dark outside. It was a light coming down from the sky. I don't know who or why. Must be those strangers that come every night. Those saucer-shaped lights put people up tight. Leave blue-green footprints that glow in the dark. I hope they get home all right. Hey, Mr. Spaceman. Won't you please take me along? The birds singing about Mr. Spaceman. Well, we have our Dr. Spaceman, to be more precise. He is our doctor of all things sky-related. Going to get to your calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. Steve Cates is here. We call him Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer. If you are interested in any of the subjects that we're talking about, you're going to want to subscribe to the Dr. Sky Experience podcast where he delves into these subjects in a very big way. You can also check it out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, earlier in the week, uh, we spent some time talking about uh, Tropical Storm Hillary in California with uh, Lloyd Lindsay Young, the famous weatherman, and even my brother-in-law, who lives out there, said he's never seen this kind of flooding in Southern California. Uh, Give me your take on Tropical Storm Hillary and uh, it hitting Southern California in the way it did. Regular listener, too, and I enjoyed Lloyd Lindsay Young's talk because I remember him so vividly when I lived in New Jersey. And we've also had him here in Arizona, a great guy. But now that this kind of, you know, story has kind of faded a little bit here, we just want to bring up some interesting talk uh, topics here. The tropical cyclone Hillary was downgraded, of course, to a tropical storm and a depression. But look at all the vast damage that it has, as your brother-in-law said, in the Los Angeles area and so many people in Palm Springs. I mean, we here in Phoenix thought we would get a big brunt of this, but we didn't. But how about this? It's not the first Hurricane Hillary in the Pacific area. This is interesting. And only 6%, Frank, of Pacific cyclones actually hit the U.S. This is a fact. So what was the one that we didn't, people probably don't even know about? It was a Category 3 cyclone called Hillary back on August 27th of 1993. It flooded Southern California like it did the other day. And then it moved on into the Midwest across Arizona, causing a lot of havoc with a lot of unnecessary rain too quickly. But there are two other storms that need to be mentioned here because the frequency of these hitting that area is pretty rare. We find the October 1858 storm that hit San Diego. It hit it incredibly hard. And this is way before, of course, computers. A lot of devastation with that. And how about this? The September 1939 Long Beach tropical storm also hit California and the Southwest, 
wow, what a crazy weather year this has been here. And it's just so amazing when you look at the intensity of these storms. And I think right now, whatever's left of that tropical depression now with a small d, I believe it's even well up into Canada, moving up along top, even up to the Maritimes. So the amazing power, but remember this, folks, the energy that a hurricane or a cyclone gets is all because of the heat of the water. I know Lloyd mentioned this in great detail, but I'll be brief on this. It's the fuel of a hurricane or a tropical storm, obviously a hurricane. So when this particular tropical storm or hurricane actually was up to, I think, a hurricane level four, it actually was over you know, warm water, 80 degrees or more. But when it came up the California way, the waters are cooler. Hard to believe. You know, I've been there. You've been there to California many times. San Diego, you dip your leg in the water, and it's never some bath like the uh, you know, Gulf of Mexico, which was, what, over 90 degrees or more. So it loses its energy when the water gets cooler. But it's amazing with that and the thing that happened over there in Hawaii. God bless the folks uh, you know, in Maui. Also, the intensity of this with the, you know, one of the parts of the hurricane or the storm was the great winds that hit there. We don't know exactly how the fire started, but all this brought to you by what? Mother Nature and incredible strangeness in, in this year. You said it. That's for sure. A lot of people very eager to chat with you. Let me say hello to Corey sure. in Palm Bay, Florida. Corey, you're on with Steve Cates. Good Hi, Dr. Sky and Frank. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Um, had a uh, question for you about, you corrected me probably two and a half, three years ago about the far side of the moon, not the dark side. Um, right. Now, we we only see one side of the moon. We don't ever see the far side, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, And correct. is that just on Earth, the entire Earth? No. No, it's, well, on the Earth, but that's our hemisphere. No, no, you're right. On this particular, you know, this, the questions you're asking, we see that one side of the moon, albeit, Corey, we see a little bit around the edges because the moon is locked on as the Earth is turning. So we call it, without getting into, you know, really technical terms, it's called the synchronous rotator. But remember, when we find ourselves seeing a new moon, you know, when you see these eclipses, when the moon comes across the sun, there's a point in space where you could see the far side and not to let people think that the far side is always in darkness, it would be a full disk of the moon visible. But the simple thing is, if you were on the surface of the moon, a lunar day is only 14 days, well, actually, a lunar day is 14 Earth days long. So you'd see the sun rising in the sky, and like we see every day, it rises, you know, in the east, that's in the west, in the period of, what, 12 to 14 hours or so or less in the winter. But you would see the sun slowly creeping up into the lunar sky. It would take 14 days. But the moon, you do not see that far side. But I have to say this, Frank and Corey, the other night, changing subjects here, we got a great performance by the Australian Pink Floyd Band. And it would be hard for me to ever tell them that there's something called the far side of the moon, (laughs) when it was really the dark side. But, hey, i got to say this. One of the Dr. Sky you know, podcast is interview with the lead singer. Hey, they're coming to your area later this year, folks, up in the Northeast, too, and all around the country. But, Corey, you only see the one side from the Earth, but you'd have to be in a spacecraft to see it illuminated on what we call the far side. Steve, I recently, last Friday, I saw the the film Oppenheimer. Did you see it? Uh, Sure did, absolutely. What did you think? I thought it was good, but being a person who's really studied this, and, you know, not, I'm not any better than anybody, 
But with the great guests we've had from the people from the Manhattan Project and such, one like the gentleman who was on board the Enola Gay, who actually, you know, armed the bomb as they were flying, I thought it was good. But the part that I thought was a little lacking, in my opinion, was the actual ignition sequence of when they tested that Trinity bomb back on July 16, 1945. I think they should have spent more time on really how that whole thing happened and what the residual effect was, because from the factual side of the world, there was far more fallout. And this is kind of scary when people now read into this. Dr. Oppenheimer and the scientists, you know, Enrico Fermi, when they sat down at lunch one time, or that's so the story goes, they said, oh, my gosh, what happens if we detonate this bomb and it ignites the atmosphere of the Earth? Right. Could have destroyed knew. the world. Right. Right. It could have destroyed the world. But here's the thing. They knew that 11 kilotons was probably the, the massive explosive power of that bomb. But remember, it was this weird-looking thing, as you saw in the movie, and for people who haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil the whole movie, but you see a thing they called the gadget on this big tower. But we know now, Frank, that because the rainstorm had stopped and finally there was this break in the clouds, far more radiation was dropped out there into a path that's incredible. I mean, I almost had to go, really, is that really real? They show now the real true path that they believe from measuring these things. And, you know, there's still radiation a little bit, albeit out there, hardly any. But it went far wide and farther than they thought. And actually, there were some people who refused, imagine this, people who refused to leave their farms on the calculations that the people at the, you know, Atomic Energy Commission and the guys like Oppenheimer, they refused to leave, but the rain caught up with that radiation cloud. And some allege, this is a fact, that they were, they didn't allege, it was a fact, they actually had rain coming down that was actually greenish in color. Whoa. That was, that was radiation. Wow. So, yeah, the movie, the movie was good in the simplest way to say it, but I think they should have spent a little more time and the ending part, which I won't give everybody the, the spoiler thing, I thought they spent a little too much time on this whole big fight that they're doing this interrogation, and people have to see the movie to see what I'm talking about. But what was your what was your? Reaction? I really I enjoyed it, uh, but um, I, I that's the danger of seeing a film that you have too much knowledge of the subject. So I know a lot less <laughs> about it than you do. So I thought it was really good. I uh, look the three hour runtime was a little tough, but I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed right. I, I enjoyed learning well, about certain aspects that i was unfamiliar with and i found the even the stuff that i did mm -hmm. know the the drama very effective and i thought it was a very well-made film but anyway as you know and yeah. as anyone that has seen the film knows there is a small role in the film uh, uh, featuring uh, probably the most famous scientist of the 20th century albert einstein and Absolutely. Uh, it, it got me down a whole rabbit hole of researching different einstein trivia and einstein facts what mm -hmm. actually happened to Albert Einstein's brain? Well, here we go. But before we go on to that, I just want to mention, I actually needed a chiropractor after I was sitting through the three-hour movie. Exactly. Because they, I think they should have had an intermission like the great Kubrick 2001 The Space Odyssey. But here we go. This is a great story, folks. And I'm reading a book right now called Driving Mr. Albert. This is one of many books. But the main thesis of the book is, that this surgeon, neurosurgeon himself, when Einstein passed on, on April 17, 1955, we find out that in the Princeton Hospital, here's Einstein's body, and our good friends here that we're going to be talking about, Dr. Harvey, he claims that he has permission to do an autopsy on Einstein. Now, that's in controversy. 
His whole goal was really serious and scientific. Einstein preferred to have been cremated and didn't want his body to be a pop, you know, icon type of thing, you know, where you'd have a piece of him sold on, as we know today, you know, like eBay or something. So what does Dr. Harvey do? He completes an autopsy on Einstein without the graphic details. I've seen a few autopsies in my life, and I have to be honest with the audience always, nothing but. I had to run the heck out of the room. That was a little too much for me to handle. But Dr. Thomas Harvey goes ahead, and he decides to take out the brain of Einstein. And he puts it in a jar, and he saves it. But he also does something even more bizarre. He decides to take the eyes of Einstein and give them to his ophthalmologist, a a doctor by the name of Henry Adams, Einstein's eye doctor. So here's the strange part about this. He wanted to do this research on what makes a genius or what makes a brain like that tick. So they find out that Einstein's brain, he did, weighs it. It's 2.71 pounds. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't tell you if that's more or less than. But again, he also states in here and some other, you know, recent research that's gone on, there's actually like 240 pieces of Einstein's brain. So the thesis of this book, Driving Mr. Albert, is this young writer from Maine decides to hook up with Dr. Harvey, who tells him he has the brain, and that one of Einstein's kin in California would really like to have some pieces out of respect to Einstein. So they go on this great road trip, and it's a great book. I'm not finished with it, but isn't that bizarre? Imagine as you're driving across the nation, you're looking back and seeing all these different, you know, different changes of Americana, maybe even Route 66, and they go across the country. And in the back, when they get out of the car every night, which was a Buick Skylark, the author says, that he rented, they go into the hotel every single night. His girlfriend calls the young man who's the author and the driver, and she's asking him, how's the brain? Can you imagine this? No, (laughs) no, I can't. Uh, That is absolutely crazy. All right. Uh, A lot of people very eager to chat with you. Let me say hello to Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi, Steve. How you doing? Good morning. Uh, doing well. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, a couple of quick questions. One is, uh, it says if you weigh 200 pounds on the earth, you would weigh 33,000 pounds if you could stand on the sun. I don't know how they come up with that. Uh, oh, and I think that's a little fighter... exaggerated, right? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, and then the fighter jets uh, are in the news, but it sounds like the pilots are heavily relying on computers and uh, within the systems of these current fighter jets. Absolutely. Let's go to your first question. I believe, and I haven't checked this, I'm not reading off anything. I believe from memory, and maybe this is not totally accurate, but this is my best guesstimate. I think it's 27 times your actual weight on the earth would be on the sun. But as far as the story goes, no, of course we couldn't survive because you know, again, I, I laugh when I hear this every time people tell me, he said, hey, Steve, did you hear about the uh, North Koreans? They landed on the sun the other day. And I said, really? And guess what the punchline ends with? Well, they did it, Joe and Frank, when it was nighttime. How's that? This is a little stupid. But the point is, when you really think about your other question about this, are you referring, Joe, to all these near collisions that are happening with uh, commercial aircraft? Is that what uh, you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. In other words, like, Suppose there's a faulty com- a computer system and the pilots are overly reliant on that. Well, I think it could be, but I, I wouldn't even go that far to blame the computers. I think there's a lot of great aviation electronics out there. 
I once was in the military space electronic area, so I can talk a little bit intelligently about that. I mean, these systems are really like triple redundant in most aircraft. You know what the real problem is? The real situation right now is the lack of the number of air traffic controllers that are out there across the nation. And, you know, I got to say this, any air traffic controller who's listening, right, Frank, I got to really salute them and, and Joe the same, because that job is so, to me, that would be so, like, emotional. I mean, oh, you're yeah. looking at these blips on the screen, and you're seeing these two airplanes that you're in charge of telling pilots what to do. I mean, obviously, they have some fail-safe measures, but there's nothing more sad than this story, real quick. Back on March 27th of 1977, many people may remember, and who knows, maybe people in the listening area actually lost, you know, family or friends on this. In Tenerife in the Canary Islands at Los Rodeos Airport, a KLM 747, KLM 4805, excuse me, was thundering down the runway when lo and behold, in the fog, Pan Am Flight 1736 was still on the runway. And without the gory details, as the KLM just jetliner, big 747, you know, know, super heavy aircraft loaded with people, it got up just enough that it didn't quite skip above the 747 that was below it, the Pan Am. It hit the top of it, killing a lot of people. There was over 583 deaths at the airport there for that series of collisions blamed on what? Not pilot. Well, who knows? I mean, I'm not blaming anybody, but the way the you know, NTSB or whatever the the people who evaluated this, you found out that these two airplanes collided. Horrible mistake that could have been prevented. But Joe, I don't think it's necessarily the airplane, the aircraft computers that are so bad, because we're having these things where planes are coming within what, Frank, a hundred feet of each other, like in San Diego here in Phoenix. So the FAA is looking at this obviously, and I think they just need, in my opinion, humble opinion, of course that they need more air traffic controllers to uh, maybe take the workload off them. I don't know how stressful that job could be, but I don't know if I could do it. Could you, Frank or Joe? I mean, uh, it would be a big challenge for me. I wouldn't want to try. Ches- uh, yeah. Chesley Sully Sullenberger, obviously the pilot best known for the miracle on the sure. Hudson landing, he talked about oh. these recent air traffic incidents, is what he had to say. Right. In the last 40 or 50 years, we've done something that, that many years ago I would not have thought possible. We have made aviation ultra safe, the safest form of transportation in human history. But these recent incidents are concerning because it was often the last layer of safety that saved the day. How how frequently occurring are these near collisions or near misses, as they've been called? Well, Frank, they've had, I mean, not to give exact numbers. I really don't know the exact number, but here's here's what I've been reading. You're having 40 or 50 of these incidents in July alone, in which aircraft are coming very close to each other. But seriously, what's interesting here in the United States, there hasn't been the totality of aircrafts like that since 2009. And I think that's kudos not only to the air traffic control system, the FAA, and the hard work that the men and women who are air traffic controllers are doing. But it's something that needs to be looked at because here in Arizona, we have, you know, if we look at the area around Phoenix, let's say, I mean, obviously New York, other major cities. The airspace here is just so congested. We have small light aircraft at little regional airports. We've got our big Sky Harbor Airport. We've got a military airbase out here. You have all kinds of people flying these ultralights and helicopter traffic, too. And if you really want to get a good glimpse of this, this is an interesting thing to do. Go on to this particular website, and it's nothing novel. Everybody pretty much knows about it. 
I go on it all the time, Flight Tracker, and we have Flight Radar 24 or Flight Tracker. That's incredible, Frank, because when we're doing a Dr. Sky Night outside, I used to have, you know, tell people, well, that's not a satellite, that's an airplane. Now I can hold my phone up to the sky, as others can, and I can tell them that that's Southwest Flight 905, United Airlines Flight, you know, 8206. It shows you where they're going. But the point I'm making is if you look at the flight tracker and say zoom into JFK live and you zoom into, say, LAX, Frank, it's amazing. You're watching all these little things moving around out there. And it's just a miracle, isn't it, that we don't have the higher frequency than we do now, but no excuse. We need to be able to have this as a really safe system because too many of these are too close, and that's not good for anybody. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Dave is in Lockport. Hello, Dave. Hi, how you doing? Uh, Dr. Sky, uh, uh, I've spoken to you before. I have a couple of things. First is, um, have you ever read the book Nerves by Lester Del Rey? And what did you think of it? And the other is, Mm -hmm. oh, you didn't. No, sir. You should read more. Well, tell me more. So, uh, and let let everybody hear this. Apparently, the he did his homework. It was back mm-hmm. uh, in World War II, and it was okay. an excellent book. It basically was about the China Syndrome way before okay. its time. And it was uh, – uh, there were people – he wrote the book, and because of the Nazi spies, they downplayed it. And it was available uh, publicly because it was published, but it was restricted in the, the uh, Library of Congress you had to have a clearance to read it, uh, but they wow. didn't—they uh, didn't, uh, hmm. put a hold on it because they didn't want the Nazis to be suspicious because it was so close to reality. Because he didn't. Well, Dave, if you it. could, yeah, if you could send that information to Frank, I'd love to be yeah, on the tail. That'd be great. I'll, 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 pa- be great. I'll pass it along. Uh, thank you, Dave. I did you have another quick comment? Because I just yeah, want to get to some the other. The other one was. Uh, the Bikini Atoll, when they set up the yes. first hydrogen bomb, mm-hmm. uh, is it true that they didn't really know 100% that it wouldn't start a chain reaction with the hydrogen in the seawater? Absolutely. And you can see a lot of those images of those specific tests. Those are very brave souls. Because what did they do, Dave, in some of those tests? They actually sent warships, you know, old warships there that they weren't going to use. And it just eviscerated them off the planet. And the hydrogen bomb, if we go to a description, and maybe one day we can really talk about this in greater detail, the mechanics of how that is, it's explained a little bit in the Oppenheimer movie, right, Frank? You hear a little Mm -hmm. bit about the development of the hydrogen bomb. But the interesting thing there is that bomb itself, including the one we talked about before with the Trinity test, they really didn't know the limitations of that. But you're going from a Hiroshima bomb, which is maybe on the order of about 15 to 18 kilotons, to the tests that they did over there that were in the megaton range. And then the worst one of all, if you call them, you know, bad, 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 you know, atomic bombs, was the alleged Russian Tsar Bomba test, which they did over a place called Novaya Zemlya, which is way up in Siberia. Gosh, Frank and Dave, they detonated an airdropped one from one of those Russian bear bombers which was allegedly to be a yield of 100 megatons, the most powerful explosion ever. I'm surprised they didn't worry about whether they'd set the atmosphere on fire, but it didn't. 
All right, we're going to continue with Dr. Sky in a moment. We'll talk about uh, nefarious satellite actors. We'll talk about Space Force and maybe, if there's time, even UAPs. And uh, certainly, if there's time, we'll try and get to your questions as well. 800-848-9222. This is The Infinite Side of Midnight with Dr. Sky. Steve Cates, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Welcome to Earth, Third Rock from the Sun. She walks into Smokies one hip at a time, like a broken field runner slipping through the line. He likes the way she looks, so he calls a little wife, says, Don't wait up for me. I'll be working late tonight. Wife hangs up the phone, bursts into tears, calls her sister up and cries, get over here. Sister tells her boyfriend, be back in a while. Boyfriend wants a beer, the story's just a mile. He leaves a motor running, he'll only be a minute. Third rock from the sun. This is the infinite side of midnight, where every two weeks we chat with Dr. Sky. Steve Cates, check out his own podcast at the Dr. Sky Experience. Steve, we were talking a little bit about satellites and the hazards of uh, of potentially nefarious actors in the satellite world. Space Force was created to deal with exactly these kind of threats. What's Space Force doing? Well, here's something interesting here. As of August 11th, the Space Force has really set up the 75th Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Squadron. And it's interesting because here's what it'll do. I mean, this is the first time we're actually getting an acknowledgement of the following things. They're tasked with providing intelligence on adversary space capabilities. It'll do things like analyze the capabilities of targets, locate and track these targets, as well as get a load of this, participate in target engagement, which could be referring simply, obviously, we're smart people here, all of us listening, and you and I, destroying or disrupting adversary satellites and the ground stations that support them. So if people don't think we don't want war, that the next level of space warfare doesn't go up to space, I think would be a little bit naive. But that's interesting. And their patch is kind of interesting. I'm looking at it here from another source. You see a Grim Reaper with a triangle and a big 75 on it. And for those of you that like military and space patches and your collectors, I'm sure there'll be one coming to a source near you uh, really soon. So this has really been taken seriously, as it should, sadly, because look at what we can do now or what other countries might do to our you know, infrastructure and our assets. Imagine the disruption you could cause in the financial markets if you just kicked off uh, and knocked out some of these important spacecraft, including surveillance satellites. Steve, two weeks ago, we talked about the UAP hearings that Congress held. Now Mm -hmm. Mexico is saying they're probably going to have a round of UAP hearings. Meantime, the uh, NASA director, Dr. Lurie Leshen, actually spoke to Fox 10 Phoenix. And um, apparently NASA Mm -hmm. is not sold on the idea of UAPs or UFOs. This is what the director told Fox 10. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Has anyone ever talked about that with you? No. 
Okay. Anything <laughs> else you, you make of those hearings when you hear that on Capitol Hill? I mean, look, there's clearly a lot of interest. Our interest is in actually scientifically following the evidence and, and looking for life elsewhere. And I think we have the chance within our lifetimes to answer that question. Whether it's intelligent life, that would be very interesting, obviously. But if you just look at the history of life on Earth, it stayed very, very simple for a very long time. Single-celled organisms, like the algae in your pool that we all know about in Arizona, um, things like that. Uh, those are, that's much more likely the, the kind of life we're going to find, especially locally. What do we make of uh, the director's response there, Steve? Well, I know her, and she's part of the station that I'm with there doing my programs. You know, my my interviews is Fox 10 in Phoenix, but she's interesting. But it seems like a big separation there. I mean, obviously, they're reiterating, and it's a good thing that they're doing. They're talking about searching for life out in the universe, but not necessarily really getting into the great details that I think I'd want to hear about what the UFO hearings were all about. I mean, David Grush, I thought, was the most you know promising of all the people that were being you know in, in front of Congress. But the thing I think we're waiting for is, and I'm sure you are, Frank, and you're doing this all the time with these great guests. I'm wondering, when are we ever going to hear what they find out, if we ever would, inside the skiff, if David Grush said that he knows that we have captured alien craft and that we also have biologics, which to me means bodies. I mean, where does this go from here? It's promising. But from Dr. Leshen, I mean, their mission, which she's studying from astronomy, is where you find life on, let's say, exoplanets. So I'm thinking closer to home. I'm just hoping we get some answers to what those guys did in testifying and the Congress back one in July 25th, about what, a month ago? We, we need more answers. Robert's in Suffolk. Robert, what's your question? Hi, Steve and Frank. The Webb Space Telescope, have we been mm -hmm. able to image directly any exoplanets? and get usable spectra yeah. to determine what their atmospheres and uh, composition may be? Interesting question. We have, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to find out and hear more about this myself. They're obviously concentrating on searching for the origin of the universe timeline, going back to the 13.77 billion year origin from the big expansion, the Big Bang. But that's interesting because if we go back in history, in 1995, the first of these exoplanets, 51 Pegasi, was actually discovered. I'm excited to see some of these images because what they're going to do is hopefully give us some answers, as you mentioned with Spectra, none that I've seen yet, as to what the chemical constituents really are in so-called Earth-like planets. They found a couple, not necessarily just with James Webb, that are these planets that have like a mirror surface that they're made of 100% metal, like a BB would be, but still, no uh, signs of existing life or life as we know it from, you know, elements and constitutions like, you know, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide. This is going to be interesting, but that's a cool question. I'm, I'm looking for those answers, too. Steve, as it so often does whenever we're together, the hour has just flown by. I have pages of things that I didn't get to you, uh, get to okay. ask you about. Uh, what do you say we do this again in two weeks? Well, I mean, and I love it, and thank you for having me here, and I want to thank all the people that make it happen. And always what? Remember to keep your eyes to the skies and, and check out the Dr. Sky Experience. We have a variety of things there, Frank, from not only astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, but from American exceptionalism, which the station stands for, and so many other things, and even rock and roll interviews and other great things to lighten ourselves up and 
expand our mind. I love it. It's a uh, terrific podcast. It's really a show. I, I think it's absolutely great. And uh, we're grateful that you spend an hour with us every two weeks. Uh, a lot of stuff to get into, including uh, some updates on Gilgo. Until then, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.